Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Hey, Brad. How's it going? Hey, Steve. It is... Um, it's going all right. A little, little tired this morning. Slept really well, but still tired. I think it's one of those things where you have a great night of sleep and your body is just like, oh, I wish I was still sleeping. But um, I will bring some energy to this, to this episode, I promise. All right. You got to uh, get through it for a, a little under an hour and we'll be all right. Oh, man. Get through it. Listeners, I will do better than get through it. I am staring at a big old coffee. So you beware. <laughs> Using drugs to amplify your performance. Legal drugs. So, um, Anyways, so this week, you know, we're not just going to get through it. We're going to go deep and explore kind of this idea of deep versus superficial um, in a very particular way. What are we going to do, Brad? Yeah, we're going to use a book that was written in 1985 by Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death as the contextual foundation for this conversation. So in Amusing Ourselves to Death, Postman makes the argument that a shift in the culture from having the common mode of discourse, i.e. the way that we have conversations, from the written word in reading books or newspapers to television is very bad for society. And he says that's the case. He has this expression, the medium is the metaphor. So if you are reading a book or long-form journalism, the medium is very deep. It's rich. It does not lend itself to hyper-reactivity or emotions. It lends itself to reason and thinking. Whereas if you're having conversations on television... The medium is much more prone to emotion, and he talks about how cable news, and again, this is back in the 80s, everything is set to music, and there's blinking lights, and the context is so superficial that you can go from talking about a terrible mass murder to a smiling weatherman all within three minutes. And Postman says that television has basically dumbed us down in the 80s. And to be clear, he doesn't say that television is bad. He said that mindless entertainment is wonderful. The problem is when everything becomes mindless entertainment, including things like the most important moral and political conversations our culture has. So I've been hearing a ton about this book, um, just from various people whose thinking I admire, and, and I finally picked it up. And I shared with Steve, I can't help but think, you know, Postman died in 2003, I want to say. I can't help but think what Postman would be saying if he was alive for today, because he thought it was bad in the 80s. Uh, and here we are. Spiraling out of control. Um, so let's use that. Let's Let's kind of dive into that a little bit, because we could go in multiple different directions here. Um, we could talk about how it has gotten what the modern world of social media and et cetera has exacerbated that. But I think before we go there, let's break apart maybe what the distinction is between 
um, or the importance of that idea of medium is the metaphor, which is this idea that how we consume information almost impacts how we see and react to the world, if I'm getting that right. Yes, exactly. So again, if the medium is reading or long-form conversation, then you are, in the case of conversation, you're face-to-face with someone, you're not rushed. What Postman would say is that reading was a big upgrade over conversation because conversation, it's like the rumor mill. Even if you're talking about very serious things, I talk to you, you talk to Steve, or excuse me, you are Steve. Steve talks to Jim, Jim talks to Bill, Bill talks to Rachel, Rachel talks to Emily. In over time, things change. Whereas with the written word, you've got a set of facts that you have to engage with. Um, Another reason that the written word in Postman's argument is so powerful is, again, because when you're reading a book, you can't be multitasking. And the words on the page, they have to do all the work. And it's a very rational, considerate way to process an argument. Um, Just think about the difference between reading a book about a topic or watching a news anchor report on that topic. So... You know, let's let's dive into that a bit because I think this reading versus watching TV or even modern times going on the internet is an interesting discourse. But I'd even challenge it that that reading itself has changed to some degree as well, although not as much. But what brings us to topic is I was recently been reading one of Charles Darwin's books from the eighteen. 18- hundreds, right? The expressions of the emotions in man and animals. And what's fascinating to me is comparing it to modern self-help style reads or even scientific reads um, is that it is very much a discourse and very much like a laying out of an argument and then evidence for and against with himself trying to prove himself wrong and then offering the counter view. And it it reminds me of this idea of like having this in-depth conversation, which you've brought up there, even more so than, than today's work, which is, um, you know, still trying to prove a point, but also the entertainment is a bigger factor. And I think, you know, reading this book from the 1800s, it's, entertainment wasn't the main goal, even though it it's a science book, but it was a popular press book that did very well. Mm-hmm. And, and and I would say, I mean, you know, we're writers, we're authors of books in particular. I would still argue that, you know, uh, if you are reading a book written by an authority on the topic today, even if they're arguing for thing A, a good writer, author is going to point out how they might be wrong. Um, and you just got like, there's such a difference between 200 pages and a five-minute story on the news. And we'll get to like the internet, you know, and social media, which is even more devoid of context. Yeah, I, I would agree. But I wonder if like if the news slash TV slash social media has changed how we write to a degree. I hear what you're saying. Totally. I think so. Or I, I certainly think it, it rewards like the pithy, snazzy, clever argument, perhaps, more than the deep considered 
um, argument. I just want to quote real quick. So here's Postman. And again, this is, um, this is just so wild because he was writing this book in the early 80s. And he says, the idea is to keep everything... Speaking of cable news, the idea is to keep everything brief, not to strain the attention of anyone, but instead to provide constant stimulation through variety, novelty, action, and movement. You are required to pay attention to no concept, no character, and no problem for more than a few seconds at a time. Bite-sized is best. Complexity must be avoided. Nuances are dispensable. Those qualifications impede the simple message. Visual, visual stimulation is a substitute for thought, and verbal precision is an anachronism. <laughs> so, you know, it's almost like we've handed over our thinking, right? You, you've taken it from we need to think through what we're reading, what we're discussing, like use logic, you know, reason through things. And instead, we've handed that over and exchange the exchanges to be able to be mindless and, and turn our brains off to a degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a real telling example is um, this whole... Um, I don't want to use the word kerfluffle, but the outrage around democratic socialism. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a, a, a little rant here. Oh no, so, Brad's going political. Yeah. So I turned on I turned on a news station not to be named just to see what was up the other night, and um, there was a lot of red on the screen. There was music that sounded like it was from a GI Joe movie. And there were pictures of certain politicians, and the anchor, not to be named, was basically saying that the democratic socialists are here, and democratic socialism is going to take over, and it is going to impede on all freedom. And then, like Postman writes, they cut to a commercial for Viagra and another commercial for... um, like a computer cleaner and then another commercial for Purina cat food. And then they were back and the next story was on when the NBA season is going to officially start. So we got about two minutes of context on democratic socialism, GI Joe music, flashing lights, fear. And if I'm watching that, I'm going to be really freaking scared about democratic socialism. Now, let's compare that to how democratic socialism might be treated in a more nuanced way, i.e. in a book. So let's just even start by defining the terms. So democratic means that it is voted for. Socialism means that resources are shared. So democratic socialism means you vote for certain resources to be shared. This country is already so supremely a model of democratic socialism. We drive on roads, unless every road you drive on is a private toll road. Guess what? That's democratic socialism. We have water that runs through the pipes. Democratic socialism. We have police departments and fire departments. We have public education. We have Medicare. I could go on and on. So the point is, this word that's become such a hot button issue and makes people so scared and angry, it's like a total illusion and that, to me, is the difference between discourse as entertainment. It's very freaking entertaining to watch this anchor rant about democratic socialism. 
versus discourse is thought, which is like, well, what, what, what is democratic socialism? And unfortunately, we, we, and I say we as a, as a culture here in America, and I know other, for listeners abroad, you have your similar versions of this. We can't have an actual conversation about the actual thing if we're just in this such superficial way. Because are there risks of having more things socialized? Of course. Are there benefits of having more things socialized? Probably. But as long as we're yelling at each other at this superficial level, we're screwed. And the reason that I don't think this is going to change is because no one wants to tune in to me and you explaining what democratic socialism is and the pros and cons. They want to tune in to a sexy blonde woman or a really strong, manly-looking guy yelling with war music. <laughs> so, yeah, not to make this political at all, uh, my favorite democratic socialist, Dwight Eisenhower, um, <laughs> the man who got the public highway system there, interstate highway system there. Anyways, um, I, I think you make a good point here, because it's not, this is just an example, but it's, we have made our way to where that nuanced contextual discussion is no longer had. And what happens is we substitute slogans like socialist. But even, Black Lives Matter, All yeah, Lives Matter, Defund the police, police, Fund the Police. I mean, I could go on and on. Yes. It's like we're having so these conversations at the most superficial bullshit level. Yes. So it's not it's not a Republican or Democrat thing. It's an all people thing, and I'm not playing both sides, but it's all people thing of clinging to your label and then like exploiting that label, taking advantage of the fact that most people won't take the time to understand the context or nuance of 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 it. And we're we're almost trained not to, right? We're trained to um trust when someone says, oh, socialist is this, like defund the police means this, et cetera, et cetera. We just kind of catch on to the slogan of our quote unquote team and then go with it. Yeah. And I think another thing that is very related that Postman points out, and I think this is such an important insight, is that the news in particular in the 80s or the shift away from reading and, and reading long, deep things has trained our attention. And again, this is in the 80s. So just imagine if he was alive now with social media, has trained our attention to just be incapacitated. So again, the example that he gives is you could watch the news talk about nuclear disarmament for three minutes. And then the next story is spoofs from the local high school talent show. And I think we see that today where people get so enraged about democratic socialism or Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, all these superficial discourses. And then they're online buying a pair of sneakers two minutes later. And then eight minutes later, they're on TikTok uploading a funny video. And then they're enraged again. And then they're... So like... Not not only is the discourse superficial, but like the way the medium, again, television, and now we're getting into the internet, it is all set up to train us not to pay deep attention. So to Postman's point, it's totally fine to have trivial fun and not pay attention. But when we treat everything that way, like conversations about the role of government or racism or policing... We're screwed. 
And again, I, 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 I'm saying again, again, it's just he's so freaking prescient because he wrote this in the 80s. His concern was like MTV and reality television and talking about how presidential races are going to turn into like reality TV contests. It's like looking into a crystal ball. <laughs> All right. So let's let's break this apart a little bit. I, I think one other thing that isn't that I'm not sure if he talks about or not is it's also a little bit of emotional exploitation in the sense that it triggers like our world triggers emotional responses. We feel anger. We feel frustrated. Uh, we feel like the other side or whoever is, is crazy. Right. And then we assign those to people, places, things. Right. And that's, that's, if you look at the news coverage, it's all centered around emotional response, fear response, and then assign it to a group, right? And <laughs> the thing you have to know about like emotional and uh, connection or feeling emotions and then assigning it um, to, you know, people, places, things is that we're really bad at like figuring out the reality there, but we're really good at assigning it. And what I mean by that is there's this classic study in psychology that found that when you put males on a bridge, a very high high bridge, right? And they feel a little bit fearful because it's rickety and it's they're crossing over, looking hundreds hundreds of feet down. And then you send um uh you know researchers send an attractive female to go talk to and interview the male on the bridge. All of a sudden, the male is attracted to the female because, like, they mistake that feeling of nerves that is coming from standing on a bridge to attraction. And it's a non-attractive person that they send up, I think. I think you might have misspoke. So, like, the effect is even more powerful. Yeah, I'm not sure. The original study doesn't mention either of them. Um, But it's... Yeah, yeah. And, and like, this is why horror movies are so effective as a first date. Yeah, exactly. Do something scary. It, it misattributes the feeling emotion. And I think that's what we get a little bit in terms of this like news cycle, social media outlash is they're creating anger, fear, etc. Right? Only instead of just misattributing, they're like directing it. They're taking that and directing it towards something or something. So it's not only are we training to have like short attentions, we're training to have these very visceral, what feels like real experiences directed at something that probably doesn't deserve that, that, you know, that feeling. Yeah. In, in it, in it, it, like another really salient example of this is you think about, and Postman gives this example in his book, you think about, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, where they would each read a speech for two hours, then they'd break, and everyone at the debate would go eat lunch and take a nap. Then they'd come back, and they'd each have an hour to rebut the other person's speech. And in that rebuttal, the first thing that they'd both say, and, and, and this is like historical documents of these speeches, is, you know, given that I only have an hour, I'll have to address these points on a superficial level. There's no music. There's no commercial breaks. Now, this year, you watch the debates. 
Dun, 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 dun. We are live from the Geico Center. This debate is sponsored by the Cleveland Clinic. And tonight we are going to get into things with the one and only Donald Trump and his challenger, Joe Biden. Let's get the drum roll. Let's have the army people shoot their guns up in the air. And let's get ready to rumble. Of course, the debate's going to be superficial. We're wa- It's not a real debate. It's like watching movie. So... I, I don't know. I keep on going on these rants because this book just helped me see how screwed we are. And I don't know how we get out of it. Um, but it is not a surprise that people are yelling at each other about defunding the police and democratic socialism. It is exactly what, like, you reap what you sow. And we have sowed this because we've let our discourses go down and down. And again, you know, everyone on this podcast knows where I stand. Um, I'm a, I'm a pretty progressive person, but this affects both sides. Like someone who is a very heated political figure is AOC. And I got a lot of respect for her because she's successful playing the current game. But the current game is her yelling at people on Twitter and being super pithy on Twitter. So, and I think she's got some really good ideas. I just wish that those ideas could be expressed in a more thorough, considerate, debatable discourse, not in a tweet. And I'm sure what she would say, and she has said it as much as, hey, I'm just going where the people are. So how do we get the people not there, but back closer to the Lincoln-Douglas model? Yeah. So one of the things I've thought a lot about is what do we incentivize and reward? And we incentivize and reward the superficial, the loud, the vocal, we do not incentivize and reward the nuanced, the contextual, the saying, I don't know, I might be wrong, I need to look at the facts here, or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's almost like... Even it, within Twitter, we do this. It, Think about it. What, like, seriously, what Donald Trump has become, and Donald Trump is a freaking Twitter all-star, he became known for the all-caps tweet. So even within the freaking medium and context of 280 characters on Twitter, you do much better if you write the tweet in all caps. It's fucking nuts. So, yeah, it, it is. And it's just kind of, again, what we incentivize and value. And I think as a society, we have to step back and ask, how do we change the incentives um, so that discourse and context and nuance matters. I don't know what the answer is at all to that question. Um, but that that seems like the only solution to me because we keep incentivizing the wrong things. And because we incentivize the wrong things, the wrong people, I'd argue, get into power. And the wrong people on um, not just Republican, but Democrat, whatever, a lot of times because because they're the loudest, the ones who could gain enough short-term attention, who might not have the, the skills once you go deep um, at all on any of these things. And it's also so interesting. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to throw out one more example of how strong this tide is in society. And it's a more recent example. And then maybe we can go into solution starting at an individual level for your family, for your local community. But um, look at Medium, Facebook, and Twitter. 
I know Facebook was the first, and then Twitter, and I think then Medium. But all these companies were born around the same time. Two have totally crushed it, Facebook and Twitter. One has to lay off more and more people every single year, Medium. And what was Medium trying to do? They were trying to create a version of Facebook and Twitter that rewarded long-form discourse and thinking. And that's the one that has failed in comparison to the other two. That's a good point. And I wonder, you know, I'm going to put on my counter hat here. To be clear, sorry, Steve, Medium hasn't like failed, failed. They're still in business and I, and I applaud them for trying to do this, but their page views are a lot less than Facebook or Twitter. Yeah. So let's, let's put on our counter hat here okay. and, and say, um, is it, you know, growing up, we had these fears of, you know, video games are going to rot your mind, like MTV is going to destroy your mind, et cetera, et cetera. And largely, I'd say those didn't, like, at least on the video game one, I know the research, like, it didn't play out. Okay. There wasn't a demonstrated increase in violence or whatever have you. Um, but on a societal like standpoint, we are where we are right now. And I'm wondering if if the younger generation who is used to these things will figure out a better way to navigate or figure or like find complexity in the simplicity, will the older generation will struggle more with it? Like, and the only reason I bring this up is I think of who's addicted to Facebook and granted it's most of us, but if you look at the research, it's, it's baby boomers who have the highest propensity for it, um, who didn't grow up with this stuff. So I'm wondering if like every generation adapts to what is in their stuff, but as a societal whole, we've, we've shifted and the older generations get like dragged even further and further into it because they're just not prepared. That's a really good point. I had never thought of it like that. Nothing cracks me up more as a side note than like the baby boomer that discovers anonymous posting on a forum for the first time (laughs) just loses their mind. Um, It's like uh, in the neighborhood forum, like I'm forgetting the name of it, but you know those neighborhood forums and every neighborhood has like the 65-year-old. It's like to the person that mistakenly took my garbage can, go fuck off. (laughs) It's just like, Jesus. So, um, but, but it is it is like you know it is something that is interesting because think about you know Brad and I are in the same same age or mid thirties but like growing up our I'm not sure your experience but it was like your parents who are in that baby boomer generation I'm guessing is they warned us of like hey don't rot your brain with video games like don't like be careful of what you read on the internet like the internet's not all true etc be careful of who you were interacting with on the internet and you know while i'm praying very broad brushes here like oh they're the crazy ones yeah our generation to be clear our parents i'm not saying all baby boomers yes (laughs) but but like our 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 generation like is handling the internet okay not the best like societal is pushing us towards this stuff but like i would argue and 
based on the data I've seen that the boomers are handling it much, much worse. So I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but there is an interesting like distinction here of like, if it, if it is your world that you're used to, you figure out some sort of complexity within that. And if not, like you're going to get dragged down into the worst, like depths of whatever attention sapping thing there is. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a good point. I think the counterpoint would be that like some of the most vehement movements that are at a very superficial level have taken hold in art and younger generations on the internet. Um, so, like, I remember during the demo, in, 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 again, trying my best to be apolitical during the Democratic primary, um, the Bernie Bros, as they're called, like, were just freaking ruthless on Twitter. And those tended to be 20 to 40 year old liberals. And the funny thing is, I remember the New York Times asked Bernie Sanders <laughs> his stance on like social media regulation. He said, I don't use any of that stuff, <laughs> which is just kind of funny. So, so this is, we're getting in the weeds here, but it's kind of interesting. So hang with us listeners and then we'll get to, you know, what can we do about it? But it's interesting here. So if you look at, if you look at traditional societal norms, what, what happens as you know, when you're young, you, you don't have the experience and wisdom to understand as deep the context and nuance of things, right? So in some senses, when we're young, we expect more superficial, hard takes. But then over time, you're supposed to develop this wisdom where you have a deeper perspective on the world and life and don't get trapped into it. But in many regards, again, I'm I'm making this up as I go without data on this side but in many regards what we're seeing is like that for a large part of a generation we're reversing that wisdom it's like we 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 go backwards because of the tension and superficiality uh drivers of like the facebook the twitter the whatever internet is pushing us away from like being able to utilize that wisdom and have that like deep understanding yeah, I, I think that's a really, um, again, I think that's a really valid insight. And I do think that there's probably, like, it's almost, I think what you're saying is it's almost like the reverse of what you'd expect. You'd expect, like, as we get older, we gain all this wisdom and whatnot. But as long as the mediums keep evolving, the wisdom that we had is not really useful. And then, like, we're, we're just not, we're not skilled in how to use the new mediums because we didn't grow up with them. Right. So it's exactly, we're we're losing out on some of that wisdom and experience because like the medium, the medium is the metaphor phenomenon is pushing us to almost um, disregard it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. Um, I still though, Oh, I struggle. And this is now it's like funny because we're, you know, we're talking about being rational and thoughtful and this is somewhat emotional. I still, when you step back and you look at society as a whole, it seems, and I'm sure every generation says this, but it seems that we're headed towards not such a great place, largely because of this, like, um, 
this tendency to amuse ourselves to death or to be in a media orbit that completely precludes any kind of nuanced take. So, okay, let's, 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 we'll just keep diving deeper because this is a, a deep for superficial context uh, podcast, but let's think about this. Okay. Um, what do you, do you think, well, I guess to frame things, we could see, I guess what you're saying is we could be headed towards uh, what occurred in the movie Idiocracy, if you've seen that. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Idiocracy, or it's funny, or the book Brave New World. Yes, right, where it's like we are just kind of... Numbed out. No, slowly numb ourselves to, to death. Um, well, amuse ourselves to death. Like, that's yeah. how we get numb. Yeah, yeah, that's the title of Postman's book. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, we're saying the same thing. I just want to give the guy credit. He called this so long ago. Sure. Uh, which is one possibility. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if this is just like an exponential, like, growth curve to it because if i think back and i i'm i'm postman in the in the 80s right or whoever in the 70s when tv is starting to do this thing and maybe this is my own bias and blindness but like from the 70s 80s to the 2000s like there were there were changes but i think like they were largely overblown to a degree like you know, our generation grew up and, you know, wasn't, as I said earlier, wasn't killed by MTV and video games. The MT- yeah, but what Postman, what, but Postman's not saying that MTV and video games are the problem. He's saying that the problem is when that medium that is very good for MTV and video games starts to become a medium for more important issues that should not be treated like MTV or a video game. So like, there's a difference, right? He's not saying that the real world on MTV is problematic. He's saying it's problematic when United States elections become the real world. Got it. So, okay, that makes some sense. So what we're really talking about is, and maybe this is why it didn't, this is maybe why I struggled with this for a bit because I've never been one to watch it, but it's like the... uh, the rise of the cable news phenomenon. Yes. That has pushed us from news to entertainment. entertainment. So, okay. So let's think about this. Um, one of the reasons that was accelerated was because of Reagan getting away of, of getting rid of the fairness doctrine, right? And TV, which essentially said that TV news stations had to present fair factual information right yep. so that pushed us towards this entertainment and then now and for sure reagan's life experience influences that decision because ronald reagan is an entertainer yeah 100 percent. so if we bring this back out and say what do we what do we do about this to to shift things back i think that is one one part of the piece is how do we how do we take the cable news, the things that are supposed to be informational and shift them more towards informational so there's a distinction between information and entertainment. And even if we go on books, if I pick up a romance novel for some unknown reason, I am very aware that that is entertainment, right? If I pick up um, 
some book on the latest, you know, science of, you know, COVID. Yeah, science of COVID. I am very, very well aware that that is informational. So there's yes. th- there's like a clear distinction. We even have phrases and names for them in books. I think maybe we need some sort of distinction <laughs> in other avenues, maybe. Yeah, and Twitter is trying to do it. When the president tweets in all caps that the election was fraudulent, Twitter says official sources called the election differently. But to me, that is like, you know, trying to tourniquet a society that is bleeding to death. Like we are so far downstream if we get to that level. So I think the question is, how do we get further upstream so that we have deeper level of conversations on the things that matter? And like you said, very clearly separate Borat from real life. (laughs) You mean Borat's not real life? Dang. Um, So, okay. So let's, let's, Let's talk about that a little bit. I'm not sure where to start, but let's look for actionable ways, maybe from our own lives and our family lives, and then expand outwards to society, because I think it's easier to solve on an individual level. Yeah. Um, so how do, how do you go about this? And I know we've talked about it, but just for listeners, and, and let's be... Um, you know, per the usual Brad Steve growth equation motto, let's be vulnerable and honest. Let's not say that you and I just, you know, sit and read 900 page books all day because we don't, but let's talk about how we try to navigate this. Sure. So I tried to distinguish, um, I mean, exactly kind of what I did there is like entertainment time from like intellectual time to degree. And when my ni- my, my mind is like numb or I turn it off, then I'm like cognizantly aware of it. So to give you, to give you an idea, um, I, on any drive by myself, I tend to listen to audiobooks or podcasts for information. Okay. Unless I am completely zoned out. And then I go to something like, um, entertain like music or whatever have you so i have that option and that choice there hopefully you're not completely zoned out while driving too often (laughs) well actually you tend to zone out when you're driving but you know yeah here's steve i've got all this research on implicit skill versus explicit skill you're actually a better driver when you're zoned out so i'm in the zone man especially if i'm driving somewhere that i've done you're zoned in you're zoned i'm zoned in but my mind is zoned out it's uh there you go it's a very different concept. That sounds like a great title of a book. Zoned in and zoned <laughs> yes, there we go. That's my next book. Um, so there's there's that, but then like, so my reading time, I tend to read almost exclusively for informational. I don't really read fiction books um, that much unless it's like once a runner, because I just am a very slow reader. We've discussed this on other podcasts and I like to make sure I'm deliberate on that. And then for like my zoned out entertainment stuff, I generally watch TV and TV in the course of entertainment stuff, not pseudo entertainment stuff. So I, I stay away from like the pseudo informational entertainment mix there which would be like cable news etc etc or tv talking show heads even tv talking show sports you know 
things, which is similar, I'd say, is I stay away from that stuff because it's, 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 uh, it's entertainment disguised as information. So I just yep. kind of stay away from it. And then I think the hardest thing to do is like the social media, which we've talked about a lot, but I try and just follow the people who I know are good for information and minimize my following of people who are more on the shout loud and scream. And I almost do a check in the sense that like, if I'm feeling very emotional or whatever, you know, fear, anxiety, et cetera, from looking at someone's social media, then that almost serves as a signal to me and be like, well, do I really need to be following this person? And every once in a while, you know, especially like around big events, I go down the rabbit hole of looking at the Twitter, what's going on in the world and what have you. But I make sure that I have to go down that rabbit hole of not following those people and just, you know, searching whatever so that like I understand at least, you know, implicitly that that is entertainment to me, not real life. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. I do something similar on Twitter, and, and this applies to all social media. And I don't have like a numerical um, objective boundary. But basically, if somebody on seems to be tweeting often, that in itself, I'm a little bit skeptical. And by often, I mean like more than 10 times a day. And if the content of a lot of those tweets is angry then I don't really think much of that person, whether they're a politician or not. And I know this is going to be like a not popular belief, but a lot of politicians spend too much time on Twitter. And there's a caveat. Some people very clearly have social media managers, so it's not them on Twitter. Like Joe Biden's not tweeting, guys. He's not, his, his tweets wouldn't be that pithy if it was him. Um, whereas some candidates, you can very clearly tell it's actually them on Twitter. And the real world's not Twitter. So I'm like, you know what? I actually don't necessarily trust them to make thoughtful real world decisions because they're on Twitter all day. That's a good point. And Twitter's entertainment. It's entertainment for them. It's a big cocktail party. It's a, it's a you-know-what swinging so, party. So uh, you know, one of the best things as I sit here and think is the self-awareness to understand the feelings and emotions you're experiencing. Yes. Because like, when I read a book or go into the nuance of something, I get emotions, but they're, they're, they're like driven by like curiosity or like, aha, or that makes sense, or I'm making a connection, or that's interesting, right? It's a very distinct kind of like feeling slash emotional response. If I'm watching, if I'm feeling entertainment, or I'm sorry, if I'm watching entertainment or being entertained, it's a different emotional response. It's maybe a little anxiety in some horror movie or something like that. Maybe a little fear if I'm scrolling through Twitter. Maybe like uh, overwhelming excitement um, or what have you or intrigue. But it's it's different. And I think being able to use those feelings and, and emotions is one of the ways to almost distinguish if you're in this informational zone or this... Uh, entertainment zone. Yeah, it's um, it reminds me of um, I, I, okay. So now I'm going to zoom back out to to cultural 
things. It reminds me of something that your boy, Sam Harris, who's got a very um, well-known podcast called Making Sense recently said about how certain people are like certain people are attracted to certain politicians because those politicians make them feel morally superior or make them feel okay about themselves. So this is the person that is like Barack Obama is an elitist. He just wrote he only tweets once a week and he just wrote a 768-page memoir. He is an elitist. He thinks he's better than me. I want the candidate that tweets all day, all caps, doesn't even read. And I identify more with that person. So this is almost like Brave New World meets 1984. Like the culture, we've amused ourselves to death to the point where now, if you write a long book and don't tweet, you're seen as some arrogant elitist. And the leader that we're going to worship is someone that is like anti-deep thinking. Um, that's I, like it, it is. I think that's a somewhat accurate assessment of where we're at. And it's not all doomsday. There are ways out. Um, and, and it's not even anyone's fault. Like it's a cultural thing. I don't think people, I, I, I think that I, I am, I am a prime example myself because I can be both of these people. There are weeks where I am so distracted and I'm on Twitter and I'm emotionally enraged in the thought of reading a 760 page book. There's no way I could do it. But man, the weeks that I'm actually able to just throw myself and read a 760 page book and stay away from the computer and internet news. I feel so much better. So that gets back to the emotional awareness. It's like, how do we get more people to turn off the candy, the entertainment, teach them the skills to pay attention, to read, to go deep, to think deep. They'll feel better about themselves and we'll have better leaders. And it's not to say that like it's going to lead to more Democrats or more Republicans, but it will lead to an actual debate about conservative free market values versus socially progressive, more regulation values. And that is such a different debate than the debate that we're having over the last few years. In a healthy debate. Yes. I I think it's getting to a point where you can have discourse again so that like right now, all policy beliefs are essentially slogans to me. Um, not all, but a, a vast majority, because like there's no underlying substance behind them besides a feeling and emotion. So, getting to the point where we can have that, and I'm going to tie this back into I was reading the book Flow by Mahali Check Sent Me High uh, the other day, which was originally written in 1990. And in one of the chapters in the book, he talks about the loss of of writing and the loss of writing as anything other but writing for money or for a profession in the sense that people used to write and take the time to think through while writing. And again, this was written in 1990, but because of the advent of computers and other things coming around. Um, writing is becoming something that less and less people do unless you are a paid writer. And whether we call it reading, whether we're talking about writing, whether we're talking about having deep like conversations and discourse, they all help us to do the same thing, which Postman talked about, which is like think of things in a contextual way, reason through things 
and um and I'm wondering too as our writing has changed from again long letters journals thoughts etc to 280 characters text messages snapchats whatever have you is I wonder if that is contributing as well to um a superficial versus a a deep understanding Postman talks about that in the book. So he talks about just the imagery and the difference between uh, imagery and writing in how a picture is not worth a thousand words. A thousand words is a thousand words and a picture is a picture. And again, this is Postman before Instagram and filters. So now it's like, is a filtered staged picture worth a thousand words or is a filtered staged picture actually not worth a thing? And... It's just like all of these mediums are shifting us more to the emotionally driven entertainment value, um, very fast context switching. I mean, think about Twitter. You could literally scroll Twitter, and this is, or excuse me, Twitter, Instagram. You could freaking scroll Instagram and see a picture from a death camp of the Holocaust commemorating Holocaust Remembrance Day, and then a millisecond later, a picture of someone's omelet. <laughs> <laughs> this is so it's training us not to take anything serious so okay that's true okay before we go spiral you know what one thing i think is actually helpful and is going the it's but the irony is that i'm like so emotional during yeah. this conversation of being reasonable. It's the opposite direction that i think is actually pretty good podcasts yeah and we just had rich roll on to talk about this right but podcasts has allowed us to have deep conversations um, where it wasn't, you know, where we didn't have these long kind of interview shows that tend to dominate things. I mean, of course, there's entertainment and et cetera, et cetera. But podcasters really filled this avoid to a degree on having nuanced contextual conversations over a long haul. Now, will that, will that last? Or will these... You know, largely they've been driven, podcasts have been driven by individuals, and now you're starting to see mass companies jump jump on board. But, like, will that shift us more towards some hyper-entertainment thing, more of what talk radio has become, which is whether you're talking political radio in terms of Rush Limbaugh or sports radio in terms of all those ESPN talking heads, which has devolved into entertainment and yelling and saying fearful things. Um, will podcasts go that route or will it provide an avenue for, again, continued deep intellectual conversation? Yeah, I think that's it. I think, you know, so you're, you're hitting the nail on the head to me with podcasts. We talked about books, taking it back to action at an individual level. I think it is consume your information. Um, actually, I'm going to edit myself here. So it's not consume your information. It's choose the mediums that you want your brain to be like. So if you want your brain to be quick, out of context, screaming people, music, flashing lights, watch cable news and spend a lot of time on the internet. If you want your brain to be calm, thoughtful, reasoned spend a lot of time reading books and listening to podcasts. I like that. I like that metaphor or whatever we're going to call it. Like 
if you want your brain. That's a great way to conceptualize it. And now to a certain segment, we sound like elitist people telling people to only listen to podcasts and read books. Exactly. That's the problem. I mean, I literally, because in prepping for this conversation, I was just exploring the internet. So many people are ragging on Barack Obama because he wrote a 768-page book. And I'm laughing. I don't, I'm partially laughing, partially crying. <laughs> I mean, it, it, and, and this is like where this is such that this is the crux of the cultural problem. That telling people to read books and listen to podcasts instead of be angry watching entertainment news and bullshit social media is somehow an elitist value. You know the I'm going to take this in a very different direction real quick. You know the the best thing that you can do for your young, let's say uh, five, six, seven, eight year old to enhance their uh, academic ability. Read to them. That is it. If you look at the research, if you look at the research, so we're we're talking elitist, but it's not. It it's like even from a young young age, like there's something special and something. And we mess up all the time because I call Steve once a week like, Steve, I am in such a bad mood. And Steve's like, why? And I'm like, I just spent two hours on Twitter. So the point isn't that we're better than this. The point is that we can like recognize that it's not good for you or us and then switch versus someone that gets like all defensive. Like, well, I feel like shit because I was on Twitter, but fuck you for telling me I feel like shit. I'm going to spend my day on Twitter. You know, here's here's maybe another thing to tie this together, and we're going all over the place, but we talked about emotional misattribution earlier. And I'm just thinking, when I sit down to play a video game, I know... You play video what? games? I didn't know that about you. I didn't know that you played well, video Well, I games. don't anymore, but I did when I was younger, right? Yeah. So, because I don't have it. Game Boy. That's the opening of that's right. Remember, that's how Steve 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 on his Game Boy trying to calm himself down before running in a professional race is a little. See boy. that Game Boy led me to a four hundred one mile. That is the secret. Um, but I think about like going back to those years in high school and college, like of playing video games. It's like you know what you're doing. You're you're playing it to to entertain yourself because you're quote unquote bored and want to have some fun, right? So it's you're you're deliberately tying that whatever emotional response you have out of it to the entertainment factor. When I sit there on Twitter or you sit there on Twitter, you're not doing that. You don't you don't go on Twitter to be deliberately entertained. You might subconsciously, right? To a degree. You might go on there because now you say, hey, I'm bored. I'm going to scroll through Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever have you. But there's a difference between doing that and saying, hey, I'm bored. I'm going to go pop in a video game, grab my controller and play something. And I think that like that distinction matters to a large degree. And our large part of the problem is we've intertwined all this stuff on entertainment where there used to be distinction and that distinction is very powerful. Yeah. I think that's a really, um, a really good place to wrap up um, in terms of just like having the self-awareness to pay attention to when you are seeking something for entertainment value versus when you are seeking something in a more serious way. And remember that the medium as postman would say is the metaphor. So if you want to seek something seriously, probably best not to do it on a screen. If you want to amuse yourself, probably best not to read a dense book. 
So I think TV is great for watching comedians, for watching sports. It is the golden age of great TV shows in the Stahlberg household. We recently finished The Queen's Gambit, a phenomenal program on mastery and chess. We've just started The Crown. I love it. So again, we're not against TV here. I know Steve watches TV. We watch TV for entertainment. If I want to read about a political issue, I try to find a book and I hesitate because I don't always find a book, but I'll try to find a well-reported article Ideally, one from a left-leaning source and one from a right-leaning source. The problem is it's getting harder and harder to find well-reported articles on the internet. Um, and then podcasts. I think podcasts are great. You know, Ezra Klein and Sam Harris. I always tell people when they're like, so like, what do you think politically? I'm like, I listen to Ezra Klein and Sam Harris. And those two guys hate each other. And every time I listen to Ezra Klein, I'm like... I should look in the direction of Sam Harris. And every time I listen to Sam Harris, I'm like, I should look back in the direction of Ezra Klein. So, but the, and, and again, your, your recipe might be different. I guess the point is have a recipe for understanding serious issues and don't just kind of let yourself be entertained, which is certainly easier. And as I've said multiple times, I, I, I'm guilty of it too often, but at least try to figure out when you're guilty of it and then course correct. Couldn't have said it better. I think those are some great... Um, great suggestions and listeners, if you have any suggestions on how you handle all of this, this entertainment first, you know, education, information, please let us know. And if you liked and enjoyed this podcast, you know, like and review it, but also email us because we want to know what kind of topics you guys enjoy and what kind of topics you guys and gals want us to go deep on and add context to so that we are doing we are doing what we preach and um and giving information out there that is hopefully useful and not just entertaining. Yep. Well with that, Steve, I feel like we've gone deep for an hour, so I'm gonna go on YouTube and find um what episode of the MTV Real World was Tech on in Hawaii? Was that episode eight or nine? <laughs> Uh, I'm going to go watch some real world. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, I'm not. I'm going to probably go read a dense book because I'm lame. But um, appreciate y'all listening. And um, we will catch you next week with a really good interview um, with Katie Arnold, who is a contributor to Outside Magazine. She is a winner of the Leadville 100 Ultra Marathon. And um, we are talking to her about her memoir, that encompasses how she used running to deal with immense grief after losing her father and also how she uses running to help her mental health. Uh, it's a really, really great conversation. So be sure to tune into that next week and we will catch you then. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.